Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. This Sunday, voters in Turkey will go to the polls with the opposition optimistic that they have a real chance of ousting Tayyip Erdogan, who has dominated Turkish politics for two decades. We talked with Salim Koru about whether the polls that show Erdogan losing will hold. Now, in Pakistan on Thursday, the Supreme Court ruled that this week's detention of former Prime Minister Imran Khan was illegal, ordering his immediate release. We interviewed Pakistani journalist Waqas Ahmed on Wednesday ahead of that ruling about his arrest, but as you'll hear in our conversation, Ahmed, who was actually scheduled to interview Khan just before he was arrested, already knew that the detention was illegal. And finally, Israel has launched airstrikes in Gaza again, coinciding with the one-year anniversary of the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhle. Intercept reporter Alice Sperry recently visited the region, and she joined us to talk about what she saw there. Joining me first to discuss the election set to take place this Sunday in Turkey is Salim Koru. He's an analyst at the Ankara-based Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey. Welcome to Deconstructed, Salim. Thanks for having me. Can you walk us through why it was that the earthquake in Turkey has been so damaging politically to Erdogan? I could see a world in which people say, you know what, obviously he didn't produce the earthquake, but what was it about the damage it caused in the aftermath that has put him in so much political trouble? First of all, it was a massive earthquake. Um, it was bigger than anything in recent memory, though uh, comparable to the 99 earthquake. The thing is, though, that, that it doesn't seem to have had a huge effect on his uh, political chances in, this, uh, in the Sunday's election. So in terms of the impact on the elections, it wasn't huge, but I think it did shake confidence in his ability, in Erdogan's ability to govern. The Erdogan government is known for sort of fast and loose construction. Um, before elections, for example, they also give sort of building amnesties where, where unregistered buildings are registered automatically without, without proper checks being conducted. So that sort of thing didn't look good. People knew that uh, he was very much in favor of this sort of fast and loose construction sector. And that really hurt him, I think, um, in the long term, especially. Can you also talk a little bit about how the economy has kind of spun out a bit of control in, in Turkey? I occasionally see Erdogan's approach described as unorthodox. What has he done economically? It's described as unorthodox specifically because he has decided that um, contrary to recent Turkish history, uh, he doesn't need a, an independent central bank, right? Because Turkey's sort of economic policy was pretty sort of uh, mainstream uh, liberal economics, right? You had to have a, an independent central bank. You had to have sort of fiscal prudence. And that stuff was built on Erdogan's, well, the AK Party's actually first term when they won in uh, 2002. They actually got this foundation of an IMF program that they maintained uh, pretty well throughout those those first couple of terms. And um, that gave them this, this basis of, of economic growth. More recently, so towards the end of the pandemic, he decided to basically fire his, his economics team and um, conduct monetary policy on his own, effectively is what he's done, which caused rapid inflation. So what did he do? He rapidly lowered interest rates to fight inflation and only drove it further. What's been the result in kind of out in the street? So he argues that lowering interest rates is better for inflation, always, right? And markets don't like that. So the, the result has been just rampant inflation throughout. For some sectors, that's good. If you're an exporter, for example, sometimes that can be good, right? A, a weak currency uh, can help you. 
but uh, it means kind of that, that that the country doesn't have a well-defined strategy, right? That that the president is sort of not very transparent, let's say, in in conducting economic policy, which over the long term uh, people don't like. And I've seen reports of inflation running as high as fifty percent, maybe maybe higher. What's that like to live through? Well, consumer inflation is significantly higher. There's a group of economists who calculate inflation approximating numbers because the the Statistical Institute of Turkey, uh, Turkstat, used to be actually an excellent institution, um, but now nobody trusts their numbers anymore. So so economists kind of try to calculate things on their own, and you know sometimes they they. They calculate 200% consumer inflation. And it's not just that. It's the, the housing market is in disarray, especially in the big cities in, in Istanbul, Ankara, Nizmir. It's really hard. Or, or also places like Mersin. It's, it's very hard to find apartment buildings that you can live in that, that are actually affordable. Also, food inflation is incredibly high. And so as I'm thinking about the, this upcoming election, I've been also thinking about the Hungarian election where the opposition to Viktor Orban kind of felt confident that they had that they had at least a shot, that people were frustrated with his, his leadership and were going to be able to pull it together and give him a real challenge. In the end, he waltzed to a landslide victory, and the opposition kind of felt that they really actually didn't have a chance and had been overestimating the, the possibility of challenging him because he controlled so thoroughly every lever of power and controlled effectively every kind of media organization institution in the country. And there was just no way for the opposition to break through. You now have a united opposition in Turkey, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe the most united in decades, but they still face some of the same kind of structural obstacles in the sense that you know, Erdogan and his party are so dominant across the country. And so is there a possibility to break through it? And if so, how how are they going to manage to do it? I think it's an apt comparison, but the timeline's a bit off. The thing is that um, we in Turkey have had this kind of scenario before where the opposition has tried to come together, but they found repeatedly that Erdogan's system was too powerful, that, that Erdogan's political also career was still strong enough to resist a challenge. But at this point, people feel people feel much more optimistic because Erdogan has kind of shot himself in the foot with his extremely unorthodox economic policies. And also that this regime is kind of aging, that the, the AK Party elite, the sort of new elite in the country, is now sort of recognized as being very corrupt and they're, they're not as motivated as they used to be. All of those are, I think, strong factors and, and reasons why the opposition has been able to unite and, and grow bigger than it has ever before. And how are the Kurds playing into this, uh, this election? So it used to be that for the centrist opposition or the, the main opposition to work with the Kurds was kind of painted as being taboo. And Erdogan reinforced this taboo, even though he has worked with the, with the Kurds before. He, especially after the coup, uh, reinforced this taboo of working with the leftist Kurds, right? the, the HDP. I think what, what Kulishtorul, Kemal Kulishtorul, the, the uh, leader of the opposition, has now done, that's perhaps one of the most significant things, is that he has been over, able to overcome that taboo. And he has built a coalition um, that, that spans from you know, pan-Turkic nationalists to the Kurds, the, the leftist Kurds, right? That, that's the entire spectrum of, of the opposition, if you will. And he has been able to hold that together fairly effectively. Was there anything done differently? Or what did he do differently to accomplish that? He had various things um, over his tenure of more than 10 years, I'd say. If people know anything about Turkish politics uh, in the outside world, it's that... Uh, there's this sort of uh, Kemalist strain that's very secular and, and, you know, hostile to religion. And then there's this Islamist strain that Erdogan represents. What uh, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has done is really softened that uh, harsh secularism and, and made it more sort of liberal and uh, pluralistic. 
That allowed him to, to work with the center-right opposition. It allowed him to work with the pan-Turkic opposition. It also allowed him to work with the Kurds. So he has sort of liberalized and, and made the, the main opposition party more pluralistic, I would say, is the, is the main thing he's done. And Erdogan has in some ways kind of played up his confrontation with the, the U.S. or with some other Western leaders. What's the sense inside Turkey of what the kind of Western posture is uh, toward either uh, cholesterol or, or to Erdogan? How is that affecting people's postures toward those candidates? The West's posture is actually a, a very big element in Erdogan's campaign. Because Erdogan is, is telling his, his followers, his supporters, look, the West is with the opposition. And the West are our enemies, so you should really support me if you want a strong leader that will face down the West, right? He feels like uh, the, the sort of Kemalist strain within Turkey is sort of deferential to the West and that he is competitive with the West. He doesn't just want to confront them, he wants to compete with the West. And that's very much at the core of his argument, I would say. Whereas Kulistarul is saying, um, look, we want Western standards in this country. We want European standards. For that, we'd like to have good relations with the Europeans and the Americans. If Erdogan loses, does that have any impact on the way that kind of uh, Turkey's posture toward Ukraine and Russia has been? If Erdogan loses, I do think it would be a significant shift in foreign policy. But foreign policy it's a, is a big ship, obviously, and it would be gradual change. What would happen, I think, over time is that uh, Turkey re-engages with the European Union and it adopts a more orthodox stance on things like Ukraine. It wouldn't, of course, be free to act like a central European country, like, like Poland towards Russia, for example, right? Turkey is dependent uh, on, on Russian gas. It has close business ties with the Russians. So it wouldn't uh, take a hawkish stance on Russia, but it would take much more of a conservative stance, I think. Well, Salim, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. That was Salim Koru, an analyst at the Ankara-based Economic Policy Research Foundation of Turkey. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now we go to Pakistan to talk about the arrest of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Wakas Ahmed joins us now to discuss the latest developments. He's a Pakistani journalist who has worked as an editor in multiple Pakistani newsrooms, including the Daily Pakistan and the Business Recorder. Wakas, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me, Ryan. And so, Wakas, can you catch us up to speed? What happened to Imran Khan? Uh, Imran Khan was uh, illegally arrested yesterday. Uh, you can say he was abducted by paramilitary forces, not the police. There was no warrant. They broke into uh, court premises where Imran Khan was having his hearing. And during that hearing, they took him, kidnapped him, put him in a ranger's van. Rangers is a paramilitary force that uh, answers to the Pakistani military. Uh, they put him in a ranger's van and they took him away. Uh, they took him to an unknown location, not a police station. Uh, it was said they took him to an ISI uh, safe house. Uh, from there, he has been there since. And this is where we're at. And so we're recording this on Wednesday. So he was picked up on Tuesday. Yes. And so in the 24 hours since then, has any word leaked out about how he's been treated? 
Uh, he did have a hearing uh, on Wednesday and uh, he said that uh, by the NAB authorities he was reached okay but the police uh, kept him awake all night. They uh, mishandled him, they like roughed him up a bit and he was taken from one location to another in the middle of the night. He thinks that his life is in danger. He feels, he said that uh, the message he sent out through his lawyers was that he, they might inject him with something that would cause slow poisoning. So these are the fears that he has communicated to the outside world. Now, one of Khan's top advisors was similarly detained recently and, and talked of being tortured in, in detention. Do you know what I'm referring to? What happened in that case? Yeah, there have been multiple actually. First was Mr. Shabazz Gill. He was taken away by the military uh, intelligence guys, uh, basically. He was kept in a safe house. He was, according to his uh, account, he was stripped. Uh, he was tortured. Uh, his private parts were abused. Uh, he uh, said he faced uh, sexual uh, torture. Uh, when he came out, he, he had been traumatized for a while. He was not allowed to leave the country. He just recently came to the U.S. Uh, and he's on. Uh, he's going to different cities, telling about what he went through. And there was another aide of Imran Khan, Mr. Azam Swati. He's a 70-year-old man. He went through a similar abuse. The stories that he told, like when the military abducted him, took him to an unknown location, stripped him, and tortured him, and then later showed private videos of him and his wife at a government uh, guest house in Balochistan. He was privately basically filmed a few years ago and he was. Uh, they tried to blackmail him uh, with those videos and he came out with all of those things. So there's uh, a focused, concentrated efforts to um, crack down on Imran Khan and his supporters and the playbook is the same. It keeps on repeating. What's been the reaction around Pakistan since since his uh, detention? Uh, Pakistanis have been furious. Uh, this has happened for the first time in Pakistan that the Pakistani crowds have marched towards the GHQ, which is the army head Pakistan army's headquarters in Rawalpindi. This is where all the generals sit, and Pakistani people marched up to the GHQ and they broke open the gates and they went inside. This has never happened in the history of Pakistan. Pakistan has been uh, through three coups. Uh, Pakistan has been through martial law, but crowds have never entered GHQ. Similarly, in Lahore, uh, they went to the corps commander's house, which is the highest ranking general who sits in that city. Uh, they went to his house and they burnt his house down. Uh, uh, all of this is unprecedented and I, I would say historic. Where do you think it's going from here? Are you seeing it mushroom or are you starting to see it fade as a result of a crackdown? It depends on how the government deals with it. Uh, the Pakistani military today has tried to take control of the situation. Troops have moved towards Islamabad and uh, in Lahore, they've encircled these military installations. If you now go in front of these military installations, there are soldiers standing over there and they have, some of them have orders to shoot, we've been told, and there have been multiple deaths. So people are now scared. This, uh, like I said, is unprecedented. People have never faced their own military like this uh, in 70 year history of Pakistan, even though Pakistan has been ruled by military, controlled by military, people have never come face to face with them. So nobody knows how to deal with this situation. People went out yesterday and uh, uh, amazingly enough, it was women, uh, the women of PTI who were leading these uh, processions. And all the videos we saw, these women leading the protest, these women facing these uh, soldiers and the soldiers not understanding how to deal with this situation because Pakistan is a very patriarchal society. They've never dealt with, uh, dealt with situations like this. Uh, so all of this is very new uh, to Pakistani soldiers and Pakistani civilians alike. For people who are new to this, how would you describe Imran Khan's politics? Imran Khan's politics, if we try to simplify it, is center to the right, more populist kind of politics. But it is also Pakistan's middle class politics, which has its history and context. Pakistan, for a long period of time, did not have a sizable middle class. In the 90s and especially in the, in the early 2000s, during Musharraf era, Pakistan started to grow a sizable middle class. 
and this consisted of the educated uh, people uh, who were getting university education, lots of these young people. And Pakistan also saw a boom of young people at this time. So this demographic change of the middle class, uh, the middle Pakistani middle class realized that Pakistani politics is completely dominated by the Pakistani feudal elite or the Pakistani military. And they wanted to assert themselves also as a group in Pakistani politics. They did so by pinning their hopes on, on Imran Khan, who appeared on stage at that point. It could have been someone else, but it happened that it was Imran Khan and the Pakistani middle class put their hopes up on Pakistani middle class. And Imran Khan understood the Pakistani middle class. Imran Khan understood uh, they're slightly conservative, they're not completely uh, liberal as uh, you might perceive from the Western lens. They're uh, against corruption. They're against uh, what has been happening in, the Pakistan, in Pakistan for the 70 years, how the feudals and the military treat Pakistan. So he, uh, he understood this and Pakistani middle class latched on to him. Uh, so it happened by 2013, he was getting mass following and Imran Khan understood that. By 2018, he was in, a, in the position to form the government finally. And we see this Pakistani middle class now, which is also the main uh, constituent of Pakistani military, by the way. So uh, demographically, Pakistani mid, uh, military officer corps basically comes from the Pakistani middle class, urban middle class usually. These people are now pitched against each other for the first time in Pakistani history. Their main, uh, as Pakistani middle class uh, as a group comes up and the previous traditional power broker in Pakistani politics, but the Pakistani military, and nobody knows how this will go. How do Imran Khan's supporters think about his ouster? And what role do they believe that the U.S. played in pushing him out of power? And how is that influencing the political dynamic now? The U.S. role initially, when it happened in uh, 2022 April, Imran Khan claimed that there was a big U.S. role uh, in removal of his government. At least he expected that the U.S. to speak up against his removal because one thing was for certain that Imran Khan's government was removed by the help of the Pakistani military. And if the Pakistani military is going to remove him, that is an unconstitutional, illegal act according to the Pakistani constitution, how Pakistani rules of business are. And since this illegal act happened, nobody, especially Western partners, did not speak up against it. A democratically elected prime minister was removed and nobody said anything about that. And this is something also that the Pakistani people didn't like. Pakistani people were furious that a democratically elected prime minister was removed. At the time of his ouster, his uh, ratings were low. He was not doing well because uh, co because of COVID had en ended and people did not have a good year of it for the economy. And by at the end of COVID, inflation was rising, so people were unhappy with him. And this is what also military realized at that time. But as soon as he was ousted, nobody anticipated that people would be so angry at it because Imran Khan, whatever his performance was, people did elect him. And he came through a mass movement. He came by breaking the monopoly of two, uh, a two-party system. And that was a big deal in Pakistani history. About Imran, about the American aspect, Imran Khan eventually toned down on that. Imran Khan eventually realized that it was not America that played a major role in his ouster. It was his own military. And this realization is like the process of four or five months when after his ouster, initially he was talking a lot about American uh, interference because he had one clue about that. The clue... Uh, he had about that was a cable that he claimed uh, the Pakistani foreign office got uh, from the Pakistani ambassador in the US uh, and that uh, the contents of that cable according to Imran Khan were that the, uh, there was an undersecretary, a US undersecretary who uh, had talked to the ambassador about Imran Khan's removal and how there is going to be a vote of no confidence that the, uh, that American government supports. This was the allegation. Later, it turned out it, it was his own general, uh, General Kamar Javed Bajwa, who's the, uh, who was the army chief at the time. And uh, Mr. Imran Khan then turned his gun on uh, Mr. Bajwa. What do you mean it was his own general? 
uh, he was the army chief when Imran Khan was the prime minister. And uh, technically, he worked, uh, Imran Khan was his boss. Uh, and his general, it turned out, was doing a lot of things behind the scenes to ensure Mr. Imran Khan's government collapses in April. What I mean is, what was the role of the undersecretary after he explored it more deeply? Uh, and the, the cable is real. Many people in Pakistan have seen that cable. Uh, there are journalists who have seen that cable. And, in that, and also the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S. at that time, he has not denied that cable. Uh, allegedly, there was a uh, dinner meeting in which uh, the undersecretary, Mr. Donald Liu, said that there is going to be a vote of no confidence uh, against Mr. Imran Khan. And if Imran Khan's government is removed, uh, there could be an American reset with Pakistan. And if it goes unsuccessful, there will be consequences for Pakistan. These are the contents of the cable that many diplomats and journalists agree on. And so why is it then that Imran Khan has moved away from pointing that because he felt like the military was had its own agency? Uh, he, one, he feels that the uh, military had its own agency. And secondly, he feels that he should not fight America. And there's this tendency for him, uh, I've seen in the past few months, to tone down on that. Not just that, he has tried to reach out to U.S. senators and congressmen through uh, overseas Pakistanis, Americans basically who live in uh, uh, America who have Pakistani roots. So these people who are, uh, m many of them are Republican and Democratic donors. They've reached out to their senators. They've reached out to their congressmen. Uh, we've, because of those efforts, we've seen like Congressman uh, Brad Sherman uh, speaking up uh, against human rights abuses in Pakistan. So it seems that Mr. Khan is trying to reach out to America and say that I'm not as bad as my army uh, made me out to uh, in front of you. Basically, he feels that Pakistani military has been bad-mouthing him in front of Americans and American diplomats, especially, and uh, American congressmen and military people. And they've been presenting Imran Khan as a right-wing populist who's anti-American, who wants uh, enmity in Amer against America, and who wants to go into China camp. Imran Khan has been trying recently, after going out of power, after realizing that he has to build relationship with everyone, he's been trying to mend these fences. He's been trying to dispel this image of his. I see. And, and uh, waving around the charts at the U.S., was you know partially or, or primarily responsible for his ouster, gets in the way of getting the U.S.'s help in in getting him back into power. Yes, I would imagine is that. And what, so, what are the charges that they're they're uh, they're they're cooking up against him? Uh, there are one hundred and forty cases actually. There are so many charges. There is one charge uh, about a watch that he purchased. Uh, that was gifted to him, and he purchased it at half the price and sold in the market. Uh, there is uh, this uh, the recent case that they got him in. The thing that they arrested him on is about uh, this university land that was gifted to his wife by a rich uh, property dealer in Pakistan, Mr. Malik Riaz, and they say that they, he acquired that land for the university illegally. But it doesn't matter. There are going to be so many cases. Every step that he has taken in the past four or five years, they might be able to find some irregularity because in Pakistan, systems are so weak and so loose. There are always irregularities in things. But generally, the Pakistani people agree that Imran Khan is not a corrupt person. He's, he's spent his public life for 50 years in front of Pakistanis. He has built three cancer hospitals. He has collected funds for, for universities. And people have generally found him to be honest in his financial dealings, at least. Uh, so these charges, are, people, they have been unable to stick these charges on him. They've been unable to convince the Pakistani public that Imran Khan is an evil guy. But they do have uh, uh, the process on their side. I won't say even like justice because the Pakistani Supreme Court has been uh, pushing out these cases, like rejecting many of these cases. But still, uh, like today, uh, on Wednesday, there was a case in Islamabad High Court about Imran Khan's paternity from many years ago, at least 15, 16 years ago, that was a case in California court 
uh, whether Imran Khan is the father of uh, Mr. Uh, White. And that case is now restarting in a Pakistani court, in Islamabad High Court. But today there was a three-member, um, uh, three judges, a three-member court that sat. Two of these judges said uh, that this is a frivolous case and there's no need to reopen this case again. But the Islamabad uh, High Court Chief Justice immediately even realizing that two of the judges were against reopening the case, uh, he, uh, he broke the bench and uh, said that he'll reconstitute a new uh, bench to hear the case again because these judges were biased. So basically, he's been trapped in many cases uh, at the same time. He, when he was out uh, till Tuesday, he used to go into a court hearing every other day with his broken leg. He had bullets, he got fired at in November in his assassination attempts. So he would go in his wheelchair sometimes, sometimes uh, and uh, he, he would go to court every day, court hearing every day. And this has been going on for a while and this will they will keep him occupied in this. And the only reason to keep him occupied in this is basically they don't want him to participate in politics. They won't, don't want him to run elections. They want him to become unpopular. Uh, they're afraid of this because they've seen over the past years how popular he has become. He has become bigger than the military. And that is such a huge feat in Pakistan for someone to become bigger than the military because military is a grand institution. It controls everything. It controls business empires. It controls your politics. It controls your scientific research universities in Pakistan. There are no institutions that are free from the military. Even if you find a civilian institution, there's going to be a lieutenant general, major general sitting on top of it. Uh, and to in this situation, to become a brand bigger than the military is unacceptable to the military. If he wins the next elections, he might fire many of these generals who are doing all of this to him, who have allegedly tried to assassinate him, who have allegedly assassinated a journalist aligned to Mr. Imran Khan. Uh, and that's unacceptable. Well, Waqas Ahmed, thank you for the update. And we look forward to following your work. Thank you so much, Ryan. And that was Wakas Ahmed, a Pakistani journalist who is starting a member-funded news site covering Pakistani politics and the economy called The Brief. Next, I'm joined by my colleague Alice Sperry, who reports on U.S. foreign policy, abuses by military and security forces, and the repression of dissent there. She has a news story out this week marking the one-year anniversary of the Israeli government's killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Is the IDF willing to apologize, ready to apologize? I think it's an opportunity for me to say here that we are very sorry of the deaths of the late Shirina Buakla. Aliche, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you for having me. And so you are just back from uh, another reporting trip uh, to Israel and the occupied territories, and you're joining us on the week that, I don't know if you followed this, but it, this, you know, it's, it's the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, uh, but here in Washington, Rashida Tlaib was hosting an event to commemorate the Nakba which marks the day, you, you can get more into it, but marks, marks the day, basically the founding of the modern country of Israel. Kevin McCarthy blocked her from having it, calling it anti-Semitic. Uh, Bernie Sanders invited her over to the Senate side and, and allowed her to hold the event there because he's the chair of the Health Education Labor Committee and said, you can use, you might, you can use my space to mark this. It's also the one-year anniversary of the killing by Israeli forces of Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. So first of all, I'm curious, as somebody who's been there so many times, how have you seen it change over the years? Yeah, it's, you know, this last trip was particularly difficult. Uh, I, you know, I've been going back since 2006. That was my first trip to the West Bank and, you know, going pretty regularly every year or two. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of visible differences on the ground. Like you can see that primarily the settlement enterprise, it's, it's really kind of sprawling. I mean, every time I go back, there are new neighborhoods built out of nowhere. There are new cities. There's additional checkpoints, additional restrictions on movement for Palestinians. But then really what's changed, I would say, over the last several years is, is just kind of like the, the, the level of you know hopelessness that, that many Palestinians feel. Like they are completely fed up with the occupation. Many of them are very fed up with their own leadership. There's just like a sense that... Um, 
things are getting worse and worse. The violence in the West Bank and in Gaza is is escalating. And by violence, I mean, really, Israeli um, incursions into Palestinian cities. I mean, I think oftentimes when I speak with Americans or people who haven't been to the territories, there's like a not a full understanding of, you know, what, what the landscape looks like. And, you know, the West Bank is occupied territory, is divided in different kinds of areas. The cities should be, in theory, under the control of the Palestinian Authority, but the Israeli military has increasingly been uh, raiding cities and um, really invading them. And uh, and that's actually what Shirina Bouakle was reporting on last year when she was in Janin, which is a city in the, in the northern West Bank. She was reporting on these increased incursions when she was killed in broad daylight. She was um, no, nowhere near fighting that had happened earlier that day. She was wearing a clearly visible press vest. Um, and even though Israeli authorities initially tried to really distort the narrative of what had happened, they said she was closer to fighting. Like, it, it, you know, we've since then had a number of independent investigations uh, and even a pretty detailed reconstruction of the dynamics of the of the event by forensic architecture, which really leave no doubt that, you know, she was visible and identifiable as a journalist. And, um, and she, you know, she was reporting on these incursions that have been going on with increasing frequency since then. Um, last year was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since the second intifada in the early 2000s. And this year is already far worse than last year. So it's really, there's a sense that things are just not, not getting any better um, at all. In your recent piece for The Intercept, you talk about how the State Department says that their conclusion or their assumption at this point is that Israeli forces unintentionally shot Shireen Abu Akla. Having looked at the kind of forensic reconstruction of the killing, how on earth did they come to that conclusion? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, that was a conclusion that the U.S. Security Coordination, which is this position that sort of responds to the State Department and DOD and is the security liaison between Israel and the Palestinian territories based in Israel. And um, he put out this statement in July, actually over the July 4th weekend, there, were, there was a lot of controversy around that because it was sort of like buried on a holiday weekend. And, you know, this was after a number of independent investigations by the Associated Press, CNN, The Times, many other, Bellingcat, uh, had sort of reconstructed already the dynamics of the incident. And at that point, the security coordinator said that, you know, he had reviewed the existing investigations, the Israeli investigations, which cleared the military of any wrongdoing, as they always do. And um, the forensic architecture reconstruction hadn't been released yet. That came a few weeks later. And following that, which, you know, is online for everybody to see, it's a pretty detailed, really kind of horrifying reconstruction of the events. Um, following that, there was a, a large pressure campaign, including, you know, several members of Congress repeatedly called on the State Department to do more about this. And so the USCC, the security coordinator, sort of re-embarked on a new investigation and has been doing uh, has been doing this work for the last several months, including interviewing people. He actually met with Forensic Architecture and with Al-Haq, which is a Palestinian human rights group. And I think, you know, just a side note there, I think it's it's important to mention that because Al-Haq is one of six Palestinian NGOs that the Israeli government declared terrorist organizations last year in an effort to sort of stifle the, you know, the their work. And these are organizations that have repeatedly brought filings to the International Criminal Court about uh, Israel's mistreatment of Palestinians. Um, so the security coordinator was supposed to deliver a classified briefing for members of the Senate that asked for it, and that hasn't happened yet. He was expected to release a report on the, on his investigation a few months ago, that also hasn't happened yet. And last week, Senator Van Hollen publicly said that, you know, he had heard that, that this report was now being circulated within the administration that wanted to make some modifications before they release it to Congress, which, you know, of course, he pushed back against. The State Department won't really say anything more about it, but they did say in a briefing last week that basically the conclusions remain the same, which is in the conclusion that this was unintentional. And I really have no way of knowing how they got to that conclusion. I mean, anybody that sees the video will certainly have major doubts about that. Yeah, the forensic architecture, and I would encourage people to go find that. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, re- the reconstruction shows what the, what the vantage point was from uh, where the Israeli position was. So it shows you know how visible the press would have been. And it also shows the shots that missed, missing only by a couple of inches and hitting a tree next to her. And it, it really makes it very, very difficult to imagine that this was just a, a random spraying of bullets that, that just happened to all land, like right at the, right at the spot that was necessary. 
uh, for her for her life to be taken. So what is the uh, what is the assumption among her her colleagues and others who've who've looked into this more more closely? I mean, I think anybody that was there, and also all pretty much all the other reviews, the independent reviews that have happened on it, really you know, show that there, there was a clear, a clear targeting of this group of journalists. Actually, the UN released a report before forensic architecture. And, you know, the UN is usually pretty measured when it comes to these assessments. And they said the bullet was well-aimed. Um, the fact that Shirin was killed with a single bullet to the head. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and again, when you watch the, the video reconstruction, it, it's clear how visible she was and how identifiable as a journalist she was. My understanding is that the security coordinator has been raising doubts about the intentionality element of it, but it, it's really, I mean, I, it's hard to, to say how that, that conclusion was reached. It's also, you know, it's, it's worth noting that this was not an isolated incident. Like Palestinian journalists are regularly targeted by Israeli forces. In fact, this week, the Committee to Protect Journalists issued a report that identified the killing of at least 20 journalists in Palestine, the majority of them Palestinians, a couple of them were foreign citizens. And it notes that many of them, I think the number was 13, were clearly identifiable as press or were driving in, in press vehicles at the time they were targeted. So really, being a, Palestinian, being a journalist in Palestine offers no additional protection. Um, they are just as exposed to, to Israeli military violence as, as all Palestinian civilians. And I was struck by another uh, section of your piece uh, where you wrote about this infamous recent kind of pogrom that, that went on. In, in the West Bank, and a journalist was contemplating going to cover it. You know, most journalists, when those things are happening, grab the bag, run uh, to get there as, to the scene as quickly as possible. This time she said no, A, out of fear, and B, out of, I think she said, you know, what's the point? Was, was that a new kind of emotion that you were encountering in, on this trip? This is definitely something I've been hearing from a lot of Palestinian journalists, many of whom were personal friends of Shirin Abu uh, And, you know, to be fair, many of them continue to do the work. And uh, in, even in the days after she was killed, Al Jazeera kept sending crews to Janine uh, and, you know, people kept reporting on the story. In fact, Al Jazeera has been one of the most consistent organizations covering the story and the investigations. But w- what many of them told me is that it wasn't just a sense of fear that kind of permeated their work, of, of the, although that's there too, of course. But the sense that, you know, really their lives are not worthy. The particular journalist you mentioned who is a freelance Palestinian-American journalist who has actually contributed to The Intercept before, what she was saying is like, really, there's this sense that we don't matter, that nobody's even talking about Shirin Abu Akhla anymore. She mentioned the, uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner last week, and you know, during which Biden talked about Austin Tice, the American journalist who's been missing in Syria for years, and he, he talked about um, Evan Gershowich, who's detained in Russia. And he didn't mention Shirin Abwakli's name. There's this sense that, you know, she doesn't count, even though Shirin Abwakli was not only a Palestinian journalist, a very well-respected journalist, she was an American citizen too, which I think is another element of the story that we can kind of talk more about. But there's this sense that, you know, this happened, the U.S. government has done what it, what it usually does, which is like, you know, kind of minimal criticism or calling for, or initially only calling for like Israel to investigate, eventually giving in and sort of starting their own investigation. But then there's this idea that we we move on. And so I think a lot of Palestinian journalists and are, are just feeling really disheartened and kind of like abandoned, um, even by some of their colleagues. I mean, some organizations have consistently called for justice for Shirin Abu Akhle, but a lot of media organizations have moved on and sort of, you know, forgotten. Right. And since your previous trip, the Israeli government has taken an even further hard right turn uh, with with the new government there. Uh, how how do how does the, this new government um, talk about uh, Shireen? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know that I have like specific what's in mind of things they said. But one thing I'll say about the new government is that if you talk to any Palestinians, many of them are you know like horrified on one hand. On the other hand, they're also almost glad that this government is as explicit as it is in its racism and in its hatred of Palestinians. I mean, we saw, you mentioned earlier the this pogrom that took place near, near Nablus in Hawara in February, where, you know, you had like Israeli ministers basically calling for the city to be burnt to the ground. I mean, this is something that's, that's just, it's now so explicit and so evident that it's impossible to deny. And, and the policies on the ground have not really changed that much. Uh, the settlement enterprise is developing as it always has. The targeting of journalists, the targeting of civilians is, has been an issue for years. This government is no different uh, in that sense, but they are just much more open in their rhetoric. And I think in a way that it's kind of like, you know, the mask is off. And so 
Palestinians, many of them have, have told me that, you know, if the international community cannot respond to the open racism and, and supremacy, supremacism of this government, then really there's no there's no hope they ever will. And, and it's been interesting to see. I mean, the Biden administration has certainly been tested by this government. They have been, you know, they're still very measured and careful in their statements, but they've been making increasingly critical statements. And, you know, that's that's not much. They can do a lot more. Uh, but um, but they're definitely in, you know, being put in a position that that's challenging to them. And more than two dozen people have been killed in recent days in, in Gaza. Can you bring us up to speed there? What's what's going on in, in Gaza? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with Gaza is that you you could have easily missed it. Uh, there is so little coverage in, in most American media, certainly, about what's happening. But basically, the, Israel has launched uh, a bombing campaign again on on Gaza, targeting members in this case of Islamic Jihad, which is one of the groups operating from there. But you know, as they often as they often do when claiming they're targeting these members, they they tend to target very densely populated areas. I mean, let's not forget that Gaza is the most densely populated area in the world, where you know two million Palestinians are confined in this very narrow space. And so they're targeting all these these buildings that are home to civilians, and you know, children are killed every time. This time, the, the death toll is currently twenty seven people, I believe. But these kinds of raids have been happening with increasing frequency. I mean, it used to be once every couple of years, you'd have a big military campaign in Gaza. And now it's just like, it feels like it's every few months. Uh, and it, it lasts a few days. Usually Egypt comes in and brokers some kind of ceasefire and then everybody moves on. And then six months in, it happens again. And uh, it, it's hard to even write about Gaza actually as a journalist, because I feel like people are always like, I've heard that before. And then, you know, there's like, it, it's always hard to kind of like, it, you know, really explain what's going on. But it, it's just like, just constant, relentless, sort of day by day um, uh, violence. It's just like the Palestinians there have like kind of become so used to, and at the same time, you never really become used to. I mean, one of the most horrifying stories this weekend was the one about a five-year-old child who died of a panic attack during the bombing. Uh, and this actually happened a few months ago in Bethlehem, where like another child had a heart attack, a child had a heart attack because he was running away from the military. So these are like, you know, you hear the numbers and you kind of like forget what it's like, but there are really horrifying stories for each of these people. And and layered over this is the settlement project that you talked about. What what are the what do these settlements look like? Are these like cul-de-sac American suburb looking developments or what like and what's it like to see them? There's a variety of settlements. So, you know, you can have, they they change quite a bit. You can go from like high rise, kind of like, you know, skyscraper type buildings in parts of Jerusalem to this very suburban looking um, neighborhoods that have been expanding into the West Bank. And, you know, usually they're built atop a hill. So they kind of offer kind of like a vantage point also for like, you know, like a security perspective. Israel has kind of used the, the, the excuse of population growth to expand them. So many of them have like additional neighborhoods that pop up year by year and kind of take over the, you know, the next hills. But also there's been, you know, I did a story earlier this year on, on this new sort of outpost. So one thing actually, sorry, let me mention this because I think people don't know, but um, all settlements are illegal under international law. All construction by an occupying force in occupied territory is legal under international law. In addition to settlements, which the Israeli government recognizes, there are also what they call outposts, which are just as illegal as the settlements, except they're also illegal under Israeli law. So you have the settlements that Israel has recognized, and then you have these outposts that are illegal under Israeli law too, that have also been springing up everywhere around the West Bank. And Israel often will go back and retroactively legalize them. So you're seeing a lot of those. And, you know, a lot of these developments tend to be basically just land grabs. Like you'll have a few caravans and a few kind of like makeshift structures built on a hill as a way to claim territory. And a new kind of outpost that, that's been used quite a bit, in, particularly in the South or West Bank, is this agricultural outpost that I wrote about in my recent piece, where basically even just one or two settlers will go out with a few animals and kind of like stake a claim to a piece of land and use the animals to kind of go into Palestinian farmers' fields and destroy their crops, but also as a way to kind of, you know, claim that land. And so that's like a very low cost, very easy to maintain type of type of settlement that that really allows to take over more and more land, doesn't require a lot of people to do it. It's really you know, in one case, one of the settlements I visited is just this one guy armed on a hilltop with his sheep. And, uh, you know, very few Palestinians are kind of willing to go up to their land to to 
to defend it. So yeah, I mean, we're seeing a really a, a full variety of structures. But I want to say last year that the settler population in the West Bank reached half a million people, which is massive. Um, so um, yeah, it's certainly not stopping. Right, and becoming its own massive political constituency as well. Yes, absolutely, and that's like a very important point. We actually have a couple members of the current government who are settlers and you know very supportive of the settler enterprise. And, you know, this, there's also divisions within Israeli society around this and a lot of settlers, um, especially the, the kind of like most extremist ones, the ones that, you know, some of them, some settlements are basically suburbs and, uh, you know, people commute in and out of them. And, you know, there's all these roads that are being constructed for settlers that like allow them to easily get into Israel. And so a lot of people kind of commute from this from the settlements also because there's, you know, an incentive to move there. Like housing is a lot cheaper. There's all kinds of like additional perks that are thrown in for for people to move to settlements. But then you also have very ideological settlers that are the ones that tend to live in places like Hebron, right, which is a Palestinian city where like downtown in the city, there are buildings that have been taken over by these like very fundamentalist families. And uh, and those people, you know, they're, they're not necessarily working as much. The army has to defend them. So I forget what the ratio like, you know, army to settlers is, but it's become like a burden on Israeli society as well to essentially defend this enterprise. So there's like you know, not everybody in Israel is, is happy about this. Uh, something else I wrote about this year is this unit, this IDF unit that was created a few years ago, I, initially as a place for Orthodox men to serve because, you know, Israel has a mandatory military draft with some exemptions. Uh, Orthodox religious men are usually exempted for a number of reasons. And um, so this unit was set up as an opportunity for them to serve. It offers all kinds of religious accommodations. And, you know, for instance, there are no women on their bases and uh, there are other sort of exceptions. And so it, it was used to incentivize this population to join the military. And really who has ended up serving there are the most militant Orthodox men. And then also settlers who are not necessarily particularly religious, but are really the, the ideologically driven one. And, and this has become one of the most violent units of the Israeli military uh, that's been behind a number of abuses, in, including the death of another Palestinian-American last year. And they were recently moved out of the West Bank into the Golan Heights, partially in response to, you know, like all of the, the human rights abuses they've been accused of. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a group that's inc- increasingly powerful, particularly with this Israeli administration. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Uh, Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that was Alice Sperry, reporter for The Intercept, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week, and please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com or ryan.grim at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.